Today, we're looking at Job again, and I'm going to uh, start my message today by doing something that, oh, any teacher of public speaking or any advice that you look up when it talks about um, giving a sermon tells you not to do. Now Chad's got this look on his face like, what is he going to say? No, I'm going to apologize to you today. Um, I'm going to apologize that in light of the God that I read about here in the Bible and that I see in the wonder of creation around me, that I feel very unworthy to speak to you about him. Uh, It just seems that when it comes to the greatness of God, that uh, even beginning to relay to you the height, the breadth, the power, the wonder of who he is, that I'm not worthy of that. Put me in an arena with some great thinkers and teachers of scripture, and I'm a lightweight. So I apologize today for my frail and bumbling attempts to present God's word to you. However, after reading this section of Job that we'll talk about today, I've come to realize that we are all lightweights when it comes to God. It just happens to be us lightweights that God chooses to use. He uses us to teach his word, and he uses us to spread the gospel, to teach the message of salvation, and to be his hands and feet in this world. But most of all, I hope that as we walk through Job today, that we'll see how awesome and wonderful our God is, and that his ways are not our ways, and that this fact is a very good thing. Before we begin our scripture portion, I think it'd be good to quickly recap what we've been talking, or what you guys have been talking about over the last couple of weeks. In the story of Job, we have a righteous man who God himself points out and says to Satan, here is a righteous man who fears God and shuns evil. Unbeknownst to Job, God has pointed this out to Satan, and Satan accepts a challenge to take everything from Job, to afflict him with all kinds of pain, sores, and suffering. And in his suffering, several of Job's friends come to comfort him. Failing horribly at doing so, they instead accuse Job of his sins sins that he has never committed, and they call him names and use faulty logic to basically say that Job is suffering for something that he has done. Well, Job will have none of this, and telling his friends that their so-called wisdom is not wisdom at all, he expresses that he believes real what real wisdom is. Echoing God's words in the first two chapters, Job defends his character and once more calls out to God to vindicate him. And then, a fourth friend... Elihu then speaks. Elihu has been silent up to this point. Younger than the rest of Job's friends, he has thought that he would let the age of wisdom speak first. However, Elihu is um, not really... he, He doesn't really feel like Job's friends' arguments have done justice and have done what they should. And he's not really all that okay with how Job has responded. So he begins to make four arguments that um, kind of already sum up what's been said and in a lot of ways repeats that. And uh, like his other friends before him, he makes some amazingly acute observations about God, but is very faulty in his conclusions. And this is when, out of a whirlwind, God begins to speak to Job. So the scripture portion that I want to read today is kind of uh, spaced out between Job 38 and 42, 1 through 6. There's a lot of verses in there, so I'm just going to take a few pieces. But if you wouldn't mind opening up there with me, and um, as we continue today, just kind of stay in there because we'll be looking at it. So I'll be starting out in Job 38, uh, starting at verse 1. 
And as I did last time, if you wouldn't mind, if you'd uh, please stand with me while I read this. Um, it's just a tradition that I, that I enjoy. Job 38, starting in verse 1, says this. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed its limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further? Here is where your proud waves will halt. And then we're going to pick up, in, pick up in chapter 40, starting at verse 1. Then Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's, and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor, and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. One more, uh, starting at chapter 42, 1 through 6. After God has continued to question Job, Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You can be seated. In chapter 2 of his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer starts off with this prayer. He says, Lord, how great is our dilemma. In thy presence, silence best becomes us, but love inflames our hearts and constrains us to speak. Were we to hold our peace, the stones would cry. Yet if we speak, what shall we say? Teach us to know that we cannot know, for the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Let faith support us where reason fails, and we shall think because we believe, not in order that we may believe. The chapter is called God Incomprehensible, and it sets forth an idea that the greatest disservice that believers can make to God is to imagine or portray him based not upon Scripture or what the Holy Spirit reveals about himself, but instead by casting him under our own thoughts and understandings. Mostly, the problem of sin in Tozer's eyes is this. It lies in an improper understanding of who God is. Job's friends had done this in arguing in human terms the reason for Job's suffering. And even Job had spoken of God as if he was someone bound by the rules and laws of a courtroom, that he could present his position before God as if he was in a courtroom on trial. The prophet Isaiah states in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. 
As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. As in many times in scripture, as during the Exodus where he appeared as a pillar of smoke before the Israelites, and in fire and mighty wind before the prophets, God speaks out of a whirlwind to Job in order to show him the truth of this passage from Isaiah. God tells Job to prepare himself. Brace yourself like a man, he says. Or as some translations say it, gird up your loins, prepared to answer like a man. God is telling him to man up. Get ready, Job. This is the moment Job has asked for, to speak in God in person, and Job is far from prepared for what comes next. Where were you, God asked Job? Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Were you, where were you when I set the cornerstones of the earth? Besides the end of Revelation and Jesus' death on the cross in the Bible, this book and these passages are some of the hardest for me to read out loud. Because every single time when I read them, I'm overwhelmed by the awesome wonder of who our Lord and Creator is. Where were you, Job? Job 38, 19 through 24. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you are already born. You have lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed, or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain, or a path for the thunderstorms? How can Job begin to answer these questions? They are relentless and unyielding. God is asking Job, can you even begin to explain how I govern the natural world? Can you even comprehend how it is that heaven and earth were set into motion, or what natural laws governs them and makes them continue to function. Elihu had made this comment earlier in Job 36, 26. He had said, How great is God beyond our understanding? Or as the New King James Version expresses it, Behold, God is great, and we do not know him. God asked Job to respond, to reply to him and answer these questions. And Job's response comes from a place of utter humbleness and awe. We read it in that verse, uh, chapter 40, verse 4 through 5. He said, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. The language used here is really neat in Job's response. The word unworthy here in Hebrew signifies being a lightweight. In this arena that he stands in when it comes to the knowledge, power, and wisdom of the Almighty God, Job realizes that he's not even close to being in the same class that God is. He doesn't even rate. The phrase, I put my hand over my mouth, is a Hebrew colloquialism which indicates when one has opened their mouth when they shouldn't have, when they've said more than that they should have. In today's language, it would be the equivalent of saying, I put my foot in my mouth. Job realizes that he's asked to speak face-to-face with God, And the questions that God asks him, as Corey Russell in his book, Pursuit of the Holy, says, they should entice us and draw us into the mystery of who God is, where our mouths are shut, our eyes are opened, and we can only whisper, holy, holy. Open mouth, insert foot. 
Job has come to the realization that he can't even begin to understand or explain how God governs the natural world, even less begin to speak on how he governs the spiritual or the supernatural world. Suddenly, Job's pain, loss, boils. His anger, his sadness, and his suffering seem shockingly small in comparison in the face of the great and mighty God. Yet God is not done yet. A second time, he warns Job to prepare himself, and he says, Brace yourself like a man. Even if man can explain the governance of the natural world, as many would say today, we're steadily getting closer and closer to unlocking these things as we learn more about science. People say that we're making advances in the study of atomic structure, DNA, genetics, anatomy. God makes this abundantly clear, though. You might be able to explain a few things, but you can't control it, not like he can. He does this by describing to Job two fantastical-sounding monsters, the behemoth and the leviathan. Now, it's widely debated whether these are to be taken as real creatures or not, whether they existed or whether God is using mythological monsters here to make his point. I fall into the camp, that this, and some scholars agree that these creatures were real, because otherwise God's argument doesn't seem to make as much sense. However, even though, it is widely, even though some people say that they think these are real creatures, it's argued as to who, who or what these two creatures are. If you have a study Bible or the little footnotes at the bottom of your Bible, um, it'll probably say something about thinking that these creatures are the hippopotamus and the crocodile. Now, if you take a few small aspects of these descriptions of Behemoth and Leviathan in here, that seems to start to match. However, when you read the entire description, it's very hard-pressed to think that these are the hippopotamus and the crocodile. Um, Behemoth is described as having a tail like a cedar that's mighty and powerful. I don't know if you've ever seen a hippopotamus's tail, but they're fairly small, kind of like brush-like. And Leviathan is described as a sea serpent that breathes fire and has plated body armor, untouchable by spear or arrow. Now, some groups of young Earth creationists believe that these have been descriptions of now extinct dinosaurs, which also would seem to fit well with the power and size attributed to these two creatures. Personally, I love the idea of Leviathan being a dragon. Job 41, verses 18 to 21. His snorting throws out flashes of light. His eyes are like the rays of dawn. Firebrands stream from his mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from his nostrils as from a boiling pot over a fire of reeds. His breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from his mouth. Strength resides in his neck. Dismay goes before him. The creature Leviathan can be found in other ancient literature as well, both Egyptian and Mesopotamian. Often it's depicted in a very similar fashion as it is here in Job. Um, and sometimes it's shown as a sea creature that even has multiple heads. These writings, however, are often thought to be entirely mythological in origin. So it does bring up that question. However, Job is not the only place in the Bible that Leviathan is mentioned. Just a few quick ones right here. Psalm 74, 13 through 17. It was you, the speaking of God here, it was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monsters in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him his food to the creatures of the desert. Psalm 104, 24 through 26. How many are your works, O Lord? 
In wisdom, you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, team of creatures beyond number, living things, both large and small. There the ships go to and fro in the Leviathan, which you form to frolic there. In Isaiah, the prophet uses the image of Leviathan to indicate an enemy of God. Some believe that this is meant to be a ruler or a nation, perhaps Pharaoh of Egypt or the nation of Babylon. But let me read it for you real quick here in Isaiah 27, verse 1. It says, In that day the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gilding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea in that day. Many commentaries believe that the prophet is using the image here of Leviathan to represent Satan. John Wesley made this comment. He said, By this Leviathan, serpent and dragon, for all signify the same thing. He understands some powerful enemy or enemies of God and of his church or people, which may well be called by those names, partly for their great might and partly for the great terror and destruction which they cause upon the earth. Another commentary by Matthew Henry says this, The Lord Jesus, with his strong sword, the virtue of his death, and the preaching of his gospel, does and will destroy him that has the power of death. That is the devil, the old serpent. Here, Matthew Henry is connecting the imagery used in Genesis of Satan as the crafty serpent and the dragon in Revelation 12.9. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth and his angels with him. I don't know if the imagery that God is using when talking to Job here is what he has in mind of Leviathan is talking about Satan. However, it does fascinate me to think that perhaps God, never telling Job that Satan was involved in his suffering and pain, just like Behemoth and Leviathan, who are fierce, terrifying beings who seem powerful beyond anything that man can overcome, saying this of them as well. Any hope of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. This is what God tells Job. Everything belongs to God and is subject to him. Even these great and fearsome creatures are under God's rule, as well as Satan himself. Even Satan himself could not stand up to God and cannot move or act beyond what God allows. It was God who set the parameters of what could and could not be done to Job. It is God who is in control of all things and governs both the natural and spiritual, life and death, who is judge and redeemer. And it is God who has won the victory through his son, Jesus Christ, who crushes the head of the serpent. May our response be like Job's. Again, Job 42, 2 through 6. I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is it that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke, I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. Praise God that he does not think like we do. He is not bound by the ways of man. Chad started this section on Job by talking about a box. 
He said that this box represents worldviews and how we're comfortable with what is inside our boxes and that the things outside our boxes are hard for us to understand or accept. But once again, be thankful because we can know, as Job said, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Because God's plan was so outside the box that no man could have ever have conceived of it. No one could even begin to glimpse it, and no one would have believed had God not revealed it to us himself. When all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, when we all owed a debt that could not be paid and deserved the punishment of death, God sought fit to take on himself the likeness of a man, come to earth, take the debt upon himself and carry the sins of the world on his shoulders and suffer the very punishment that we deserved. Then the final victory was won as death itself was conquered and Jesus rose again from the grave. Who could have thought of that? Who could have conceived such a plan? Where were you when he laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when he laid the foundations for your salvation? I apologize at the beginning of my message because in light of how great God is, how mighty he is, and how powerful he is, I, like Job, have to say that I'm a lightweight, a weakling compared to God, and that's a good thing because it reminds me that he is in control and that nothing can thwart his plan. And I pray that you will take hope in this today. His plan is vastly different than anything you or I could have ever imagined. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 says this, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, and not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom from God, that is, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore it is written, let those the ones who boast, boast in the Lord. God appearing to Job shows that God cares that he still controls the world, even a world where unexplainable suffering is, and that his creative acts and mysterious creatures he has created only prove that humans must live under God's control. The human mind cannot control all knowledge nor understand all situations. People must be content with a God who speaks to us. We can't demand that God gives us all the answers we might want but we can know that he can be trusted in the worst of circumstances as well as in the best because he is God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just come before you today in awe and wonder at how awesome and amazing you are, God. And like Job, we just have to say that we are speechless. I am speechless before you in awe and wonder, Lord. But I ask that you say that you use the weak and small things to triumph over the large and the fierce creatures like Leviathan, like Behemoth, like Satan, Lord. You are complete control. They cannot do anything outside of what you let them do. And Lord, that brings me comfort. And I hope that it brings comfort to the people here today. And as it did to Job, Lord, that he realized that you are God, we are not. Your ways are not our ways. And we thank you for that, Lord. Please be with us today. Amen.